Well, good morning. I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to watch the YouTube uh, show or one other context of Aziz Asari. How many of you know that name? Aziz Asari, there are about a third of you. He's hilarious. He's absolutely hilarious. And uh, he's also intriguing. He's a comedian, if you don't know, um, and I would put him in the genre of a postmodernist comedian. He literally mocks just about everything that we in our heart of hearts, if we were honest, are mocking. And there is a kind of cynicism that he exposes even as we laugh at it. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily. I don't want you to mishear, mis, be lit, mis, misled by that. But there is this kind of cynicism that, that makes him so funny as he addresses things that are stereotypically politically correct or as he addresses things that are conventional in our world. To be sure, you could argue that cynicism is hip. Cynicism is even virtuous in our culture. And it taints the lens through which we see and read everything. I mean, this idea of the postmodern cynic, it's an idea that's been around for now about, what, 80, 100 years, at least intellectually and philosophically. But it has become fully matured uh, in our age today. And if and when, if we have those lens, again, th there's something good about it and virtuous insofar as it calls to question and it it's a critique in the best sense of modernity and all sorts of conventions and beliefs and values and modernity that, that, well, quite frankly, we as Christians would be glad to see critiqued. And yet it can go beyond that. It can also throw out other, well, convictions, convictions of faith and of hope and future. And so this cynicism that is hip and even virtuous is all around and it brings us to a passage wherein it, wherein it could play havoc in our understanding. For in our passage we read these amazing and, and provocative words. Abraham laughed. Abraham laughed. Is faith laughable? Is there a kind of skepticism or disbelief that can be turned to joyful and faith-based astonishment? Or is cynicism, which leads then to unbelief, the rule? That's the kind of behind-the-scenes question that you're going to be asked to think about in this sermon. The most natural interpretation within our postmodern cynical context is to see Abraham's reaction as a kind of cynical disbelief, if not downright unbelief. Is there a virtue in that kind of cynicism? Can we distinguish cynicism that leads to unbelief from maybe a, a skepticism, say, that is turned to astonishment? When faith is discovered and discovered in its astonishing reality, 
You see, cynicism, in the way that at least I'm using it, could be this. It could be the will, the desire to disbelieve. Cynicism could be a disposition formed perhaps by the culture of, of the nihilist culture of our culture now. It, it can be this something within us that just is contrarian to belief. Certainly, at least from a biblical point of view, that would not be a virtue. Skepticism, however, in the way that I'm using it again, could be the will to desire to believe, but, but wrestling honestly with the reality of that belief and being astonished and even surprised at the power of that belief. In our passage today, I believe the laugh of Abraham is the latter. To the question, is faith laughable? We're going to say, even in a biblical sense, yes. Even as it exposes a vital transition. A vital transition. And here, really, I'm giving you the whole point of the sermon. If this was a compound service, the sermon would be over in one minute. You may be happy to know. Because this is typically what I do. But faith in God as a concept. Faith in God as a concept is wholly different than faith in God as a reality. That's what I want you to think about as we pour through this passage today. Insofar as faith is the discovery of something impossible but true, insofar as faith is the radical shift from living under the weight of self and self-sufficiency to putting ourselves into the mercy of a God who shows himself sufficient, the laugh of Abraham is the laugh of faith as it is discovered to be not merely a concept, but a reality. And it changes everything about the way we live our lives. We are in this little mini-series on the covenant in the context of, a, of an era where we are rebranding the church, and yet we're doing so without the capacity to understand the very nature or ontology of the church. It's a scary moment in the history of Christendom. The need is to rebrand it. The need is to neuter it and to rid it of all the, moderate, the vestiges of modernity that took it away from so many of the virtues of Christian faith and practice. But the danger is to rebrand it to be merely hip and correct in a social, political way. And so we go to the covenant to find our grounding, to be rooted again. And this is our final uh, sermon on that series, if you haven't been here. But let's pray as we go into it. Father, we thank you for your word, how it is our anchor. Even as we heard read today, that, that the word is near us. It has been brought into our place even now. In the preaching of your word, I pray that the voice of the pulpit would be your voice, that the voice of the man would be left behind, that we would find Jesus in this place because your Holy Spirit works the mystery of that communion even now. Pray, Lord Jesus, would you please come in spite of all the noise and speak into each of our hearts. I ask this in Christ's name, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, again, 
take this idea, and then what I want to do is give you five sort of clues that will very quickly rehearse sort of the, the context of this laugh. Five clues that will help us to understand the conclusion that I've already given you. That is, that the laugh of Abraham did not obstruct the course of God's power, nor was it contrary to faith. Rather, Abraham's laugh was manifest in the strength of faith. The strength of faith discovered as a reality in God in such moments as God's revealing himself surmounted an obstacle deemed impossible to surmount. It's that moment, maybe you've had one in your life, where you can't believe it, but it's real. And you find yourself laughing in belief. I know you've had that moment. I can't believe this is true. <laughs> that was a bad rendition. I'm not very good at that. Maybe some of you could do it much better. But try to get yourself in that spirit. So there it is. We could skip over the rest of the sermon, but you have it. But here are the clues. And this is important because these clues begin to explain how we get, in fact, that kind of faith. Not a faith in God as a concept. Kind of an abstract, intellectual, passionless, non-radical faith. But the faith of God as a reality. Clue number one, and I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. The context of, God, of this whole service, of this whole moment, is God revealing himself as El Shaddai. God all-powerful. Really all-powerful? When God takes away something you've wanted all of your life and you finally found, and he takes it away, is God all-powerful? Now it's becoming a reality. When you dream all of your life about a, a vision that God has given you to go to a promised land and, and how it would be through your offspring, that heaven itself will be birthed. But you find yourself at 100 years old, and it's impossible, no less then in that day than it is today, to give birth. And God tells you, based on the history of his incredible El Shaddai history of God, that you will give birth. Miraculously, you will. Could it be possible that God is El Shaddai in reality? I'm going to go back into this at the end, but this is a radical starting point for all of us if we are to be Christians. If you're thinking here today, I, I'm really kind of curious I see things, just the other day someone said, I, well, gave me the story of how they just have turned Christianity off and had this incredible skepticism about it, and then they got to be around some of you. And these were normal, cool people. But more than that, there was a special community that they'd never seen and felt before. They wanted to believe. There it is. Cynicism turned to skepticism. Oh, Help me in my unbelief. That's the moment. That's the moment. When faith in God as a concept becomes or is turning to faith in God as a reality. 
This is the context of all true and saving faith throughout redemptive history. There is a God. Yes. Oh, but God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the God of reality. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Horrible, uh, you know, things working against the promises that these people were living by. Obstacles unsurmountable. Over and over, it's a history of God, not merely a concept of God that you are in this room thinking about right now. And in that history of God is revealed that God is not just powerful. God is not just big, glorious in these abstract ideas of God. God is all powerful. He decrees, that is, orders and sustains all things, everything. He is all, not some, powerful. Get that into your psyche. That is incredible. And so the beginning here is this God, the God who is El Shaddai, where it makes it stupid. You know, the, the curious thing, and I about the, the Proverbs is how it takes sin and it rebrands it to stupidity. I love that about Proverbs. You know, the moralist will say, you know, sin is, you know, you're, you're, you're morally, you know, whatever, you know, stained. And that's true. But the wisdom will say, you're just stupid. <laughs> you're just stupid. I mean, if God is God, if there's El Shaddai, it's just stupid <laughs> not to fear him. To understand that he controls everything. And to fear him is not a bad thing. To fear him is to respect the fact that he controls everything. And therefore to be right with God is to be right with everything. To be wrong with God is to be wrong with everything. Think about God, the concept. Now God, El Shaddai, as revealed in a history. Where God was in the midst of a story. And the story here is that Abraham was given a promise. He was brought to the brink of despair that there was no possibility of that promise being fulfilled. Perhaps behind the scenes he's wondering, maybe I misunderstood. Maybe there's no God. Maybe that was a dream. Maybe that was an illusion. Maybe I you know, what, smoked some hemp. I don't know. <laughs> and then God breaks in. Says the promise isn't null and void. It's happening. And it's happening just the way I want it to happen, where no one can take any credit for it, where no human sufficiency is going to be attributed to this. It's God El Shaddai. That's your clue number one. That's the context of this whole story and the history of redemption thus far. Number two clue. It's then an honest and, and makes sense kind of follow-up where there's a command then to rely upon the sufficiency of God. It says it this way, walk before me. I covered this a little earlier in another sermon, earlier sermon, but, but this means basically to walk upon the reliance or independence of God. Walk before me. I could trace like in Genesis 6 and in other places where Noah and others were defined as walking before God. 
And in each case, they were specifically directed towards the manner in which they put their reliance and dependence on God in order to save them from an impending doom, like in Noah's flood. Noah walked before God, which led him into a means of grace, an instrument that God asked him to, to, to participate in, the, the, the flood, the ark itself, where everyone was laughing. It was totally contrary to the culture of the ziggurats, you know, the Babel, the Babel kind of culture that was relying on human ingenuity and wisdom and, and all of these things to bring themselves up into the heavens, to build their tower of the heavens. And here Noah is asked to go into an ark. And everyone's laughing. What a nutcase he is. And who had the last laugh? Noah. It's that language, walk before me. And notice it's not be blameless and walk before me. It's walk before me and be blameless. That's very significant. The blamelessness is not the product it's, well, how do I say this? It's, it's the result of walking in his presence. That is to say, to rely upon God, to be right with God even. To rely upon God and his means of grace that he gives in order that God would be revealed as sufficient unto that grace. And to there discover that he's right with God, and that in the sense of Noah or in the sense of Abraham, is that they, that they were justified in the sight of God, which we've covered already, which happened in chapter 15 with Abraham, where he, he believed in God and it was reckoned unto him as righteous. That's to be justified. That is to no longer feel guilt, to no longer be afraid of God in the sense that I'm going to be condemned by him. Abraham had been set free from this by grace through faith, by relying upon God in chapter 15. And now here again, we have this walk with God and here again, this language of blameless. And so here it is. These are the generations of Noah. Noah's a righteous man. That is to be said, a justified man. Why? Because he relied on God. That's called faith, justifying faith. And therefore, he was blameless in the generation. Now, we know Noah sinned before he died, before this event. Noah sinned and is called out for his sins. Abraham's sin, one of his most horrifics, is not believing in God and when he should have protected Sarah and he gave her over. But he was righteous. He was blameless. Insofar as his trust and confidence and his very relationship with God was on the sufficiency of God to make him acceptable. Of course, that's going to direct us to Isaac, who becomes the type of Christ. One who also was born miraculously. One who would also be offered as an offering on a sacrifice. But in the case of Isaac, he was spared by the sacrificial lamb, which of course is Christ typified. It's all amazing. How do you write this stuff? Thousands of years apart. So there's your second point. There's this commandment to rely on the sufficiency of God. Clue number four was obedience to participate in the means of grace that God had given him. Or am I at three? I'm at three. Thank you. That's all right. It's all right. It's three. I promise. I haven't skipped one. 
Verse 23 and following, it's interesting how meticulously that passage wants to uh, chronicle and detail Abraham's obedience. Remember, he said, this is my covenant. And I covered it again last week, but this is my covenant. And you're thinking, what do you mean? It's the covenant that he revealed in, in 15, chapter 15, that I will make you a, multiply you into a great people of many nations and ethnicities. And these people will all be one as they will be destined to heaven itself, as Hebrews 11 explains about the promised land and what they were really looking for. The promise was incredible. And this promise here is revealed by grace through faith alone in the sufficiency of God, El Shaddai. And herein, this promise, as revealed to be received by grace through faith alone, results in the obedience of Abraham to put himself into the context where that sufficiency is going to be brought into his life. It's like if I were to say to you, uh, do you believe in the sufficiency of your parent? Yes, I do. And that parent which is going to uh, take care of you and particularly feed you. So you're a little, little kid here, right? And how do you rely on the sufficiency of your parent? Well, you come down for dinner. You know, let's don't call that a works of righteousness. That's an act of faith. And so here we have it. This amazing record in detail of his obedience to circumcise. This is my covenant, that you would circumcise. And that really blows your mind because I thought the covenant was to make a great and multiplying nation and, and get you to heaven and all that stuff. Well, it is. But it's so closely identified with the means through which he will get you there that it's here established as circumcision. Circumcision which would engraft you into the body of, of, of Israel, the body of the people of God, the presence of God, where they would have the ordinances and the covenant and the temple and all of these means of grace wherein. That's what circumcision represents. An entrance, an engrafting into the presence of God. It's incredible how significant this is in Abraham's story. It's really interesting in Moses, who was born outside of circumcision and, and as he was an Egyptian, raised. And when God gave him the promise to set his people free in the Exodus to follow, it's interesting that he starts taking off. He had this incredible conversation with God. You know, well, go, God. I don't know. I mean, I can't do this. I'm not capable of this. Yeah, Moses discovered God more than a concept, but as a reality. And he wrestled. God, I don't know, man. Let, let me try to figure who you are here. Reveal yourself, he said. Reveal yourself. And God revealed himself. He said, I am. I will give mercy to whom I will give mercy and grace to whom I give grace. And so God testifies to him. But what was the context of that? The context of that was that Moses said, I, I don't got it in me, man. I'm a stammering guy. I don't talk very well. And I got problems here. I don't have the gifts. I'm aware of my insufficiency to do this, God. Remember, that's part of this. And so then God says, well, I'll go with you. And then Moses says, whoa, 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 not so fast. You told me last chapter that I can't be with you because you're a stiff and, and rebellious people. I can't go with you. You're, you're crazy, man. You'd kill us if you go with us. So there it is. There it is, people. That's what it will look like at 3 in the morning when you're wrestling 
with skepticism that leads to the astonishment of faith. It's that magical moment. Moses is taking God seriously, not just as a concept, but now is it reality? And he's wrestling with this skepticism. You can't go with us because you'd kill us. But we can't go because we're insufficient. You've got to go with us. And all of a sudden, the two are reconciled. It'll expose itself through the law of Moses in a beautiful way, in the symmetry, in the, in the in amazing dynamic way between the temple and the covenant. The covenant, legal in its nature, that will bring us to the guilt and condemnation. The covenant that then will will declare as part of a contract that, hey, but there's a little, you know, small print in the covenant that, that if you can't satisfy the covenant, small print, I will find a substitute for you to do it if you'll just put their faith in me. That, that's the small print, if you will. Isn't that a good kind of small print? And where do we see that? Of course, in the sacrificial system. The covenant leading you to the temple where there's a sacrifice made where there's a redeeming, that's the word redeemed. They, they are redeemed. Someone pays the price of the covenant. It's this incredible story. And so what is this obedience of Abraham? Don't see this as a, if you're in the Christian world and circle, as works righteousness. See this as faith realized. Faith realized. Participating in the means of grace. That brings us to number four. Are we getting this right? Everything so far gives me a context that when, Mo, when Abraham laughed, it's the laugh of faith in God as a reality. We go to the New Testament, and we have a lot of commentary on this story. That's really a cool thing if you're trying to interpret the Bible. And here it is. Hebrews by faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, he went to live. And then finally, by faith, he received power to conceive, even when Sarah was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. There's the commentary. The laughing Abraham is here described as someone who discovered the impossible in reality. It's not impossible because God is El Shaddai. Because Abraham, like Noah before him, like even Adam after the fall before him, discovered indeed that God is sufficient. How do we know that? Number five, we know that because at the very end of the story, we hear a renaming. A renaming. This is very, very significant. The renaming of Abraham and Sarah. Can you think of other instances when people were renamed in the Bible? Let's go back. When they were named for the first time. Before the, the fall, Eve is known as woman. After the fall, she is named Eve. The mother of life. The mother of of life. It's after the curse upon the serpent that sets her, as, I, as the whole sermon was last week, if you weren't here, go back to hear it, 
but this incredible trajectory of this power of womanhood in the manner in which they become the heroine, if you will, of, of Revelations 19. Quoting that passage in Genesis 3, whereby her, there's this enmity between Satan and this woman. She is in holy battle with Satan, and through her offspring, Satan would be destroyed. This is incredible stuff, people. And she is named Mother of the Living as one participating in this cosmic, incredible history of God's power manifest. El Shaddai. Think about then again, I'll go to some maybe the more familiar to you. Think about Peter in the New Testament. Simon, a shaking reed. reed. Uh, Reed, who is named Petra, of course, the rock. You think of Saul, who is named Paul. What's going on in these stories? These are those moments when faith in God as a concept got transitioned to faith in God as reality, where they put their hope and their faith and their life and everything into reliance upon God and believed. And so we have here this incredible moment where Abraham, who was high father, is now named, or Abram, who was high father, is named Abraham, father of the multitudes. High father is something that would be self-exalting as a patriarch. Here he is shown to be a part of a greater history than himself. Abraham is more than the father of of a clan, but a father of a world. Sarah, she is given the name, of course, it's, it's in, in the Hebrew, it's a little more significant. You can see it only in the, the way it's, it's spelled. Sarah versus Sarah, if you will, with an H instead of an I at the end. It goes from Sarah, my princess, to Sarah, mother of nations. Pretty big change. So what is the point of this sermon? To the question, is faith laughable? I hope that you will conclude, yes, it is laughable. Even as it exposes a vital transition from faith in God as a concept to faith in God as a reality. Let me say it again, what I said at the beginning. Insofar as faith is the discovery of something impossible but true, insofar as faith is the radical shift from living under the weight of self-sufficiency to putting ourselves into the mercy of God and his sufficiency concerning everything related to our lives, past, present, future, the laugh of Abraham is the laugh of faith as a reality versus a concept. It's, I think, something you can appreciate from common life how it's commonly want to happen in things which are least expected. The reaction is partly exulting with joy and partly being carried beyond ourselves in amazement, in admiration such as to break forth into a happy laughter. Here again, it's when faith becomes a reality. It involves this deep and existential Engagement with God, not merely as a concept, but as a reality. 
where we're at peace at last. Let me go to the take home. How then would we discern that our faith is more than in God as a concept, but in God as a reality? How would we get to that place of a laughing faith? Well, first of all, faith-seeking reason, such as to rely what is not a wish, but what is a conviction. There is this incredible, important thing about true faith. It must be wrestled with. Thomas, doubting Thomas, is probably maybe the greatest faith example of all. God, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That's what every Christian should say about every moment in life. When reality hits the fan and you're really asking the question, I mean, what, what could this be for? Why, why could, how could I possibly believe in God because of this? I mean, in a small way, I had that experience this week. A dog that I love deeply died. Only eight years, seven years old. I woke up at one third. I, I, I can't explain, but I wrestled with God this week more than I've wrestled with him in a long time. This sweet little dog that's become my shadow. This dog that, that is really like a best friend. A dog that made me walk every day. Didn't help much, but it, it helped a little, I'm sure. You know, a dog where I would go and be alone with God, but I'd always have this dog with me up in the mountains. And then she up and came across a porcupine. And she walks herself out, hobbled with her right leg maimed and from this porcupine quills that were all over her body and face. I had no idea that something like that could kill a dog, though. It was horrible, it was painful, but I had no idea that a porcupine could go through the chest into the lung and puncture it. It took me three days to wrestle with that reality. No, this isn't happening. This doesn't happen. This dog was right at the place where, where everything was perfect. God, what good could it be? What cause could you have? I mean, come on, man. This dog's not that important to your redemptive history. It's horrible when a theologian turns. <laughs> and so we wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And Lisa and I woke up the other night, we were three in the morning, and we're talking about it. You know, what's going on? A couple other things happened this week like that. Like, well, what's going on? You know what it comes down to? El Shaddai. I mean, I found myself just like you, no different, sitting in that bed going, I don't get it. I don't see any rhyme or reason for this. This is stupid. Stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life, quite frankly, God. I mean, just a little thing like that. And I had to say, but I've been teaching, and I believe that God decrees everything. It's done. I mean, I, I'll tell you where it started to save my life is I can't tell you how many little steps that were taken in this week where decisions were made. Should I have gone in the woods and found her so she didn't have to walk out? Maybe that's what exasperated went in. Should I have taken her to the vet that night versus that morning uh, after I'd pulled the quills out? Should I have waited when I went to euthanize her and she came out of the, the critical care and she looked like she was healing? 
The doctor said she's just going to go right back into that pain. There's nothing we can do. She's going to start huffing and puffing because her heart, her lungs are down. But right now, she came out with, well, about time, Dad, and let's go. Let's go hunting. She was just popping around, happy as she could be. And I'm going, no, I can't kill this dog like this. And I went to the vet. I said, something's wrong. She's trying to tell us something here. Let's don't do this. Now, I'm, I don't usually do this. I'm getting you into the crap of reality, aren't I? And I'm, wake, I'm waking up at 3.30 in the morning. Oh, maybe we should have just waited to make sure. Maybe we should. And maybe we should have. Maybe I made a mistake. Does God decree mistakes? Yes. He doesn't make mistakes. He decrees us to make mistakes. Does God decree everything? Is he all, I mean, did God have opportunity to save this dog? Yes. He didn't. There's hundreds of opportunities for him to save him. Her. Excuse me, Addie. But he didn't. I don't know. Maybe I made some mistakes. What's going to set me free from this condemnation? What's going to set me free from this anxiety? I know you've been here. I mean, this isn't as big as many issues in your life. I know. I'm embarrassed. I, I found myself confessing my sin. God, how could I possibly be so distraught about this? I mean, I could think of people who lost loved ones prematurely, even close to our home. How could I even grieve in comparison? It's God, the reality. But I really pray you will discover. It's the only thing that will set you free. It's the only thing that will set you free. It's got to be that way. It's this self-conscious recognition that we are truly, really, utterly dependent upon God. It's hunger then to know him. The hunger to know him. You know, this little, this little potato chip level of theology that's going around in the Christian circles right now is not going to get you through this stuff. You've really got to seek understanding. It's interesting that passage in Romans, how important it is that faith born is faith by the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is, how do we get faith? What's, how does this faith become the laughable faith in our life? Well, it's going to start with faith conceived. What do I mean by that? It begins by desire put into our hearts, and it's a gift of God to have that desire. And so, if you want faith, the faith in God as a reality, start with praying for it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not the result of works so that you may boast, but for, you know, and it goes. It's a gift. This is good news, by the way. If faith was not a gift, then it would not be available to everyone. It's illustrated by Christ's saving of a garrison who's filled with countless demons in a land considered untouchable. But God chose this demonic and saved him by giving him the gift of the desire to believe. So that's the conception of faith. It's a gift of God to put the disposition in your life that says you want to believe. 
Thomas's first disposition is, I believe. But the second is faith birthed. Faith conceived, now faith birthed. Faith seeking understanding. It's interesting, George Lindbeck, who was a professor here back in my day, who wrote this incredible, I think one of the greatest books on the nature of, 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 of theology that's ever been written called The Nature of Doctrine. He, uh, he describes the early church, and it's going to become like this in our church, okay? So listen to this description. We're going back to the first century in the, in the post-Christian era. He says, pagan converts to the Christian mainstream did not, for the most part, first understand faith and then decide to become Christians. Rather, the process was reversed. They first decided, faith conceived, they wanted it. They decided they wanted it. How did they do that, by the way? Because they observed Christians. Their suffering and their conviction, but also their community. And then they got catechized. And then they were baptized and professed faith in Christ. It follows exactly Romans chapter 10 that you just read. In other words, George Lindbeck will say that, that faith conceived is not yet given birth until the word brings understanding and the knowledge of God as revealed in the gospel. And so faith conceived, faith birthed, and then faith matured. Faith seeking understanding in God over and over and over and over and over and over again, persevering in faith. A kind of faith that knows the difference between faith as a concept and faith as reality because it's when you're wrestling at three in the morning, do I really, really believe in El Shaddai, God all-powerful? If so, all things whatsoever decreed by God. And it takes me out of the picture, ultimately. Notice this, though. This faith preserved or matured and persevered is a faith that results then in this hunger and thirst for God. And how would we know him? What would you do if you are hungering and thirsting for God? Well, again, you would do what Abraham did. You would participate in the means of grace. It's that simple. In other words, you would discover how it is that God is present in your midst through the ministry of word and sacrament, the fellowship of believers, the Sabbath. I'm talking to someone right now who's got a great temptation to take a job that won't let him practice the Sabbath. I can't say this about many things. If you knew me, I'm pretty open-minded about a lot of things in terms of, okay, there's other ways to get this done. We're not going to be, you know, you got to regulate what we take from Scripture. Just because the conventional way to do it is that way doesn't mean it's necessarily the biblical way. So I want to be very engaged. I want you to know that. We want to be very engaged. Conventional wisdom is not necessarily biblical wisdom. The way you spend time with God, we, I grew up in a world that had a very microscopic way of how you did it, at a time and a place and what you did and quiet time. And I think it's fine. <laughs> but there's a lot of ways and a lot of means and a lot of liturgies through which we can participate in the presence of God in prayer. So I'm not here to, to, to speak of a, of, of a conventional idea, but Sabbath. I mean, there is nothing more vital in the redemptive history of God's mediating grace to his people than the keeping of the Sabbath. A day, it's, it's bigger than you think. 
It's a day where time is given back to God. It's a day when wealth is given back to God. It's a day where self-sufficiency ultimately is given back to God. It's a day where we put ourselves and grafted into the body of Christ, into the presence of God, where he becomes our prophet through the preaching of the word, where he becomes our priest through the sacrificial nature and the sacramental nature of our worship services. He mediates that by his spirit. He becomes our king in the fellowship and the communion of the saints as we come under shepherding care. And all of this comes to fruition in a vital way on the Sabbath. And so there you have it. I'm out of time. But I want to ask you that final question. For your sake, not for anybody else's. Some of you are young and you've got a lot of life left. Some of you are old and you're dealing with reality right now bigger than you. And I know who you are, many of you. Do you believe in God, El Shaddai? Do you really believe that that idea is not just a concept, but it's supposed to come down to your reality? Do you believe in the promises of God? How would you find that belief? What, what must you do to go rehearse? Well, do I believe in God? That's what I did at 3 o'clock in the morning that night, believe it or not. Your pastor sat there and said, one more time, God, do I believe in you? Why would I believe in you? Well, yeah, it's this thing called people. I just don't get that. They just got to come from somewhere that's people-ish. There's this nature. There's this this. There's this that. I'm walking through it, and all of a sudden, now the tail scales tips. I can't prove God in, in a scientific method. Yawn, yawn. But I can know there's a God. There's no other good rational reason for what we see. And then do I believe that God is involved? And I'm going through that argument. And then I do I believe that he's El Shaddai? And I go through redemptive history, starting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and everything I'm studying for this sermon. Yeah, I mean, I can't deny it. I mean, how can I deny that all these wimpy little disciples of Christ, 12 of them who were wimps and passive and denying him after the resurrection, turned the world upside down and all died for him? I just, that's not a good rational argument against God. And there I'm doing it. Your pastor, three in the morning. Do I believe this? And I'm telling you, you need to do that more. And when you do it, you'll come to the conclusion that God decrees everything. He is all El Shaddai. I will not fear myself anymore. I will, feel, I will not fear that reliance upon materialism capitalistic system that is controlling my life. I will not fear anymore that modern intellectualism that makes me rely on my education. I will not rely on people and their peers and how they put all this pressure on me, but I put it on myself because I want them to like me. No, I don't fear people anymore. I don't fear the university anymore. I don't fear the economy anymore. I don't fear politics anymore. I fear God, and he sets me free from all other fears. And most importantly, my fear of myself. And I believe. I'll find out later why Eddie was killed. But I believe. Now, where do you need to say that?